Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12. Uh, we're going to pick up uh, with where we left off. Um, and uh, we had left off, we finished through verse 9, Proverbs chapter 12. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Proverbs chapter 9. Starting with uh, verse 10, and I'll just read verses uh, 10 through 14 to start off with. Verse 10, it says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. I know you probably haven't used the word frivolity lately. But uh, we'll get to what that means. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. That's a good promise, isn't it? A man will be satisfied by the good or by the fruit of his mouth. A uh, man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. And the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. Now, if you're with us, uh, it's, you've got to go back a couple of weeks because we haven't been in Proverbs in a few Wednesday nights. Uh, we've had different things. You know, we had the food truck night. We had uh, prayer night. We've had different things in the last few Wednesdays. But if you go back to what we looked at a few weeks ago, and we were looking at verses 1 through 9, which I titled Following Directions. And you know, obviously, God has given us as believers uh, a roadmap for life, and uh, Proverbs is, is uh, full of these things that give us uh, guide points and direction on how to, to walk in our faith. But if you look back in verse 3, which I didn't read right now, but if you look back at verse 3, it says, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. Cannot be moved. Isn't that great to know? That when God has planted us, it might feel like we're getting moved, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. The enemy would have you believe you can be moved. It goes on in verse 12, which we just read, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. So we see this, this word root again. And you, you know when you plant a tree and uh, the deeper the roots get, the stronger that tree gets, right? doesn't mean that... It, it doesn't experience the elements. It doesn't mean that it doesn't get the wind beating on it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't get the hot sun. It doesn't mean that it, uh, it doesn't have uh, diseases that attack the bark or anything else. Uh, but the deeper the roots are, the more it can withstand all the things that would come against the elements and, and all the things that, uh, uh, that, that kind of metaphors for our own life. Now, back in the 11th chapter... Uh, we see some of these same things as well. Um, in verse uh, 28, it says, uh, He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Verse 30, the, uh, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And we see these same pictures. Those of you that uh, over the years have meditated on Psalm 1. I mean, for years now, I go back to Psalm 1. Because it's always one of those passages that stands the test of time about us being uh, just tapped in uh, to the life of the Spirit and the Lord ministering to us or, 
Psalm 92.12 or John chapter 15. Uh, but even the final verse of this chapter, look at verse 28, which we may or may not get to tonight. Probably not, but let's look at it anyway. And the way of righteousness is life. And its pathway, there is no death. Isn't it great to know that um, when God plants us, he plants us in his life, in the life of Christ. Uh, I don't even think, you know, when you first get saved, you don't know what all these terms mean. You, you know, like, uh, Jesus says he is the life. You might say, what does that mean? I'm already alive. I, I, I'm breathing, aren't I? But there's a life in the Spirit. There is a life that Christ, over time, opens our eyes to that you really almost have a hard time to describe to other people because it is supernatural. You really do begin to experience this life that comes down from God. Um, lately, I've been uh, meditating on a passage um, uh, from Romans, Romans chapter 8. Uh, it says, to be carnally minded is death, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I've been meditating on this verse. Like the la for the last week, the Lord just had me just kind of keep going back to that verse. And it's just one little verse. And I'm, I'm saying, Lord, what does all that, what does all of that mean? What is the depth of all that mean? Let me read the verse again to you again. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, I already have eternal life, and so do you if you've been saved. But there's something else that Paul is getting at in, uh, in, in Romans there, and it's that life in the Holy Spirit, that actually we are able to, by the grace of God, experience life in a way that only God can give us. I mean, it, it is coming through the Spirit into our spirit, and it brings with it a peace and a fulfillment. But let's have a look at these verses, starting in verse 10. Interesting verse to start off with. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercy of the wicked are cruel. So if you love your pet, you've got a verse here for you. If you're an animal lover, you've got a verse here. You can hold on to this one for the rest of your life. See, I've got a verse. It's okay for me to love my animal a lot. A person who truly lives to serve God, truly lives to serve and please God, has compassion even on his animals, and really respects that God is the giver of life to all things. Would we agree with that? That everything has life, everything has breath, it's to praise the Lord, but we know that God is the one that's given life and given breath. And those that are surrendered to the Lord they see life through the eyes of the Scripture. They have compassion for an animal. But think about it this way. Those of us that, that live to please the Lord, we have compassion on an animal, but not at the expense of other things God cares greatly for, like an unborn child in the womb. We don't have respect for an animal and ignore, like Psalm 139, 13. So this Proverbs does not negate that God formed us in the inward parts. It doesn't negate that he knew us before we were born. The wicked, 
And in a larger contest, the wicked is anyone who is still lost without Christ. But in a, probably a more specific vein, the wicked are those that really are adamantly opposed to God. Now, unsaved people, you don't, you don't get to heaven, or you don't stand before the judgment uh, at the end and say, well, I really didn't do a lot of bad stuff, I just never received Jesus. That, that, that'll be the same sentence for eternity. But the wicked, those that willfully reject the Word of God and they reject the grace of God, and, and those that are specifically living in opposition to God, their tender mercies aren't so tender. The literal contrast here is that one who loves God has a compassion that extends beyond people and even down to dependent animals. Now, notice what it says. It says in verse 10, uh, the life of his animal. So it would be your horse, your oxen, you know, your, you know, th those, th those animals, your sheep that are dependent upon you. So you would have a compassion that's not just for people, but also for those animals that God has given you for whether it be animal husbandry, whether it be pets, what have you. Now, the scriptures say uh, regarding um, you know, taking care of animals, do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, right? So that you would be able to feed it and it still maintains its strength while it's doing its work. Not to save money, you're thinking about the animal, and by the way, it's smart for you too if the ox is strong. Now, the contrast though is someone who... Uh, is opposed to God, they don't have compassion for the lives and souls of men, much less an animal. They don't have a compassion for the lives and souls of men. Now we saw in verse uh, in, in the previous chapter, he who wins souls is wise. We live in the day, we live in a day and age right now where animal campaigns are considered noble, right? Whales, seals, all kinds of animals, tigers. But to save lives, especially unborn lives, are ignored, and that's even ridiculed in our society today. And because of that, we see the motives of so many. Uh, some of the motives of those that, that do have a constant thought about animals. Some of their motives border on idolatry. Now, we, we don't have many people in a society today that are actually worshiping animals like you would have seen in ancient times. But there is more of a love for animals now than there is uh, for human life. There's a complete callousness for human life. I mean, a lot of people know who April the Giraffe is or Cecil the Lion. And all these different things that we see, uh, there's, a, there's a heart for animals, but not a heart for people. And God, you know, he, man was the last, in the, in, it was the crowning of creation was to create man in his own image, right? And so the tender mercies of the wicked, where they should have a compassion for their fellow man, there's not a compassion for fellow man. Our, our motives have to come our compassion has to come not from ourselves because we don't really have it in us to be compassionate people 
for other human, um, other human beings. We have to love God first with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he gives us a love for other people. Amen? Your love will fade for people if it doesn't burn hot for God. And so then we actually will be merciful because our Father in heaven is merciful. We'll care about human beings. And then because God cares about the little details, yes, we'll then care about our animals too. But we'll not get it out of whack either. We'll not actually, well, we love animals, but we just don't care about people. That's not what the passage is indicating. As a good, that's not uh, God's guidance here at all. And by the way, in, in, in other parts of the world, um, uh, the kind of compassion for animals uh, when you kind of depend on animals just to survive isn't the same as here. I'll never forget, I was in college, and uh, this is back when I was bartending my way through school, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is what our young people should do. But I wasn't saved then, so I was bartending my way through school, and I had this college professor that would come and sit there, and he, um, he grew up in, uh, of all places, I went to college in Miami, but he grew up in Virginia, so we talked a little Virginia here and there, and, and he was talking about he grew up out way out in the country on a farm, and, and any time his mom needed to you know, cook a chicken, just went out there, snapped the neck. Um, Peter would have a hard time uh, kind of hanging out with his grandmother for the, or our mother for the day, right? Because that's just the way, that's the way you do. And then around, around the rest of the world, uh, when you go to other countries and third world countries, you can see there's not a whole lot of compassion for animals. But when we have a compassion that comes from God, it'll be to people first, then animals by extension, but not to the demise of what God's called us to do, and that's really to be fishers of men, lovers of men, helpers of men and women. Let's look at verse 11. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. I have the New King James, so some of your uh, versions uh, probably say vanity or different other words. But as Christians, we're not only called... um, we're not only called to work and do something with our lives, but we're called to work and do the right things with our lives. Not just to do something with our lives, but to do the right things with our lives. Our priorities are called to be the priorities of Jesus Christ. We're to be working in the Lord's vineyard. Now, you, you may not work in a literal vineyard, but you are working in the Lord's vineyard while you're on this earth. While your feet are sitting on the earth, we are working in his vineyard. We're called to. And we're to be seeking what? First, the kingdom of God. And by the way, when we seek first the kingdom of God, it's a great protection from us from squandering our lives on the fleeting things of this world. You think it's easy to get distracted these days? Do you think it's easy to take our eyes off the fact that Jesus said, labor until I return. To be in the fields, planting seed, harvesting. You think it's easy to get distracted? I, I certainly think it is. It doesn't take long. You know, the fleeting things of this world, they're held up as valuable and important, and yet they're neither, aren't they? Many of the things in this world are held up as valued and important, and they're, they're not valuable, and they're not important, and certainly not eternally. 
And notice this isn't wicked things. It says the things follow frivolity. It's not, oh, well, man, I, I gave up the really sinful life I used to live. I don't do that stuff anymore. It's not saying about these wicked things. This isn't necessarily saying drunkenness and immorality and all these kind of things. Frivolity comes with the Hebrew word that says rake. The Hebrew word rake, it means empty, vain, or worthless. Empty, vain, or worthless. Now certainly uh, grotesque, wicked things would, uh, would fall in that category, though I would say worse than that, something like murder. But empty, vain, and worthless, those can be things that are somewhat benign. They're, they're neither, they, could be, they could appear on the surface neither wrong or right. Like a magazine, Field and Stream magazine. Is it a sin? No. But if you spent your life saying, well, I only read, I only read Field and Stream magazine uh, only about 10 hours a day, every day, would that be frivolity? Of course. You've taken something that, that in and of itself is not a sin. But it can be something that consumes our life. This talks about the one who follows frivolity, devoid of understanding. You're not walking in wisdom. Now you're walking according to the course of this world in foolishness. A 2014 Time Magazine article, it cites a Nielsen report that shows that Americans 18 and over now average 11 hours a day connected to TV, smartphone, PCs, radios, and gaming devices. 11 plus hours. Now we're only awake about 16 to 18. So we have all these things that can be filling our mind when the Lord wants us to be filling them with Him. Many Christians, I think you'd agree with this, many Christians have ample time, or they make ample time, I'll say this, whether they even have the ample time, somehow make ample time for leisure, for sports, for hobbies, for movies, for Netflix, for streaming, for travel, and the list goes on. But the same Christians all across from coast to coast can't seem to find any time to help hurting people. When Jesus spent his entire life doing that, he said, follow me. He said, the things you see me doing, I want you doing. Now, that's, that's what he said. That's exactly if they will. Well, I'm not sure that he really meant that. Read Matthew chapter 25 one more time. I will keep bringing it up. Just reread Matthew 25. Reread it. There's so many opportunities to minister to hurting people. Our hospitals are full. The jails are full. The nursing homes are full. All these places are full, and yet people's DVRs are full, right? Their calendars are packed. I would have had time. I'm telling you, Matthew 25 is a frightening chapter, even though it's a sobering chapter, because it, Jesus says, wow, you had all these opportunities we're missing them many, many times. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Pure and undefiled religion. You know, God, the heart of God loves to see the church ministering to widows and orphans. We have so many in this society today. So many. I, I sent a little video. Sport, I sent a Sports Illustrated 19-minute um, documentary 
to a group of men on a, a thread and said, watch this, guys, because it underscores how many of our young men are being raised by single moms. And the single moms, even this church, they need our help. Help mentor kids. Help uh, pour into young men's lives. And we'll look back and, uh, and God will say, there were so many opportunities and you were following frivolity. Frivolity. Empty. Vain, worthless things. I mean, how many times can we watch the same movie? God would ask us that question. There's things out there that people really need that really need to be ministered to. It's impossible, again, to read Matthew chapter 25 and not to at least assess our time management as it relates to things that God says are important. If he says it's important, we can better be assured it really is. Look at verse 12. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of, right, uh, the, root of the righteous yields fruit. The pride of life breeds discontent. And the course of this world fuels covetousness, doesn't it? The, the world has a course. It is head first careening, and it's been going in the same direction all the way since the Garden of Eden. But it fuels covetousness. If you look at the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you, every now and then it's good to just go reread the Ten Commandments. If you haven't read them lately, go reread them. But if you look at the Ten Commandments, three of them are directly related to coveting. They might come right here. Well, someone, you might say, doesn't one of them talk about coveting? Yeah, that's the tenth, right? Shall not covet. But number seven, adultery. And number eight, stealing. They're directly uh, related to coveting. And you could certainly say that number six and number nine, which is murder and lying, they can certainly begin with coveting, Right? So coveting uh, plays a role in three directly, at least five, and certainly uh, even the early commandments related to God uh, are coveting the wrong things. But lust or coveting is a trap, isn't it? It's a trap. God warns against it. Not only does he command against it, but he lovingly warns against it because he says you'll never really find satisfaction lusting or coveting. What is, what is coveting or lusting? It's the desire for more, for better, for newer, right? For more expensive, for more, look at me, right? All of these things that the world lusts and covets after. But these things are never quenched by our flesh. Never, 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 ever quenched by your flesh. Say, well, if I, if I got that one last thing, I would never lust or covet ever again. Give yourself a few minutes after that. The novelty wars off. You realize it's not as great as you thought. A new one came out the next week. Whatever it is. By the way, our economy, our economy is not just driven by needs. And there are needs, the new brakes, right? The deodorant, that's a need. <laughs> I remind our teens of this every now and then. <laughs> Haircuts, milk, eggs, those are needs, right? There's, there's needs. 
But our economy is not just driven by needs. Our economy, more and more, I would say, is driven by an endless list of wants. An endless list of wants. An endless list of desires. An endless list of comparing with what everybody else has. And then you get, you know, you've got such a celebrity-driven society that everyone's comparing themselves to people that have 42,000 square, square foot homes in Hollywood Hills. Oh my God, it's my 3,000 square foot house. Our refrigerator's only six years old. It's outdated. You ever watch House Hunters? People that have never even had a house walk in every single thing. This is old. This got to go. This got to go. This got to go. This got to go. I'm like, whatever happened to just being content for just even a little bit? It's unreal. But those that abide in Christ, those that are planted and rooted in his life, Jesus says, do this and I'll prove it to you. Abide in me. Those who are planted and rooted in Christ... Planted in his commands. They love his commands. He said, if you love me, you'll love my commands. Jesus said that. Planted and rooted in the Holy Spirit, they're delivered from, get this Christian, they're delivered from the treadmill of discontent. Do you want to be delivered from the treadmill of discontent? We all should want to be delivered from the treadmill of discontent. It is a treadmill. The old, you know, the hamster thing there, nonstop, going in nowhere fast. Treadmill of discontent. Jesus says, in me you'll find life. You'll find peace. You'll find contentment. You won't covet the, the catch of the world, what it, what it has caught, what it has acquired, what it has somehow put together. Paul wrote to Timothy, you know, that was a pastoral epistle, but writing to a church leader, and, uh, and by inference, Paul wanted Timothy to make sure he preached this to the church and make sure the church knew it. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, you need to preach this. And what did he say in 1 Timothy 6, 6? Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you hear anyone on the TV saying, the greatest gain you could have is contentment? You see that on Squawk Box? You see that on the television shows? Do you see that on the business programs? No. But that's what God says. He says, if you want to be content, become godly. By the way, if you become godly, you won't walk around saying, I'm godly. Quite the opposite. You'll just be abiding in Christ. You won't, you won't actually think you're godly. You'll still say, you're miles you have to go. But all of a sudden, you'll be flooded with peace and contentment. With humility, by the way, all, all will come in that. Godliness. How do you have godliness? Well, you have to stay rooted in Christ. You can't, you can't fashion godliness. You receive godliness by the Holy Spirit ministering to you and to me. But not only was it great gain through contentment, it's a great gain in this sense. Uh, we'll only bear fruit in, in our life. First, that fruit of the Spirit, right? We'll bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Found in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kind of fruit that'll come out of our 
spirit. Our character will be perfected by the Lord and we'll experience these things that you can't buy with money. You can't buy love and joy and peace with money. You can try. The world has been trying for 6,000 plus years. But not only will that fruit come out of our lives and flow through our lives, but we'll have the fruit of other touched lives. We'll touch other people, starting in our own household, outside of our house, Sunday school you might teach, people you minister to, people you're touching at work, people that you're pouring into. Jesus told his disciples to multiply, right? So not only does the fruit come through our life, but we actually become fruitful and multiplying. A rooted disciple spawns other rooted disciples. That's what happens. You and I are here today because other Christians in times past had a fruitful life. Did you ever stop and think about that? The reason you and I are here is because other Christians that were rooted reached out to us. I, I look back and when I was saved, I can specifically remember people reaching out to me. Let's look at the next verse, verse 13. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. You might even say when you first read that, do those two phrases go together? Well, of course they do, because God wrote it, so we don't have to worry about that. But as believers, off the top, we're not immune to troubles and opposition, are we? You could say, so, oh, once you get saved, all your problems will go away. It's going to be smooth sailing. You're going to see, like, certain bestsellers. Nothing but success. Doors will open every which direction for you. Nothing will be a problem. There's some kind of preaching like that. They wonder why people are greatly disenchanted later. But Jesus told the disciples expressly, he told them they would endure trials and tribulations, didn't he? In fact, he told all of them they would die a martyr's death except for one. How about knowing that's in your future? All the apostles knew that. But our troubles, this proverb here says, the, uh, it says, the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. The troubles in our life will not be because, generally speaking, proverbs are, uh, are not a 100% everything single time. But generally speaking, our problems won't be because we could not control our own mouths. Think of all the unnecessary violence, divorce, emotional pain, anger, bitterness, financial ruin, business failure. Oh, political fallout, we've all seen that, right? And the list goes on and on because a person could not hold their tongue. Matter of fact, they just spoke whatever was in their mind and let it out in a moment of anger, pride, whatever it may be. And by the way, for, for us, the saved, without the Holy, help of the Holy Spirit, we have a hard time controlling our tongue too, right? We need the Holy Spirit. Uh, our tongue will fail us without the help of God. Martin Luther said, a man cannot do good before he is made good. We need God to actually pour his goodness into us to help control our minds and to control our tongues. And even with the Holy Spirit helping us, 
to use our tongue for good, we sometimes have to go back and open that same mouth with an apology or a repair job. True? And I'm the only one who's had to do this in the last 12 months. It's had to issue an apology or attempt to repair that came out wrong. And by the way, sometimes because we're flawed, we can even just have words come out wrong and we didn't even mean to come out wrong. It's just because we're imperfect. That's why love covers a multitude of sin. You have to be able to forgive other people for mistakes and we have to be forgiven and vice versa. And that's the way the church continues to grow. But the Holy Spirit will help us guard our tongues. And even though our mouths will, I would say, decreasingly over time, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you mature, your mouth will decreasingly start trouble with other people, with, for yourself. Even though that will happen, we still have an enemy that fights against us, even if we said everything right. Don't we? That's what the passage says. The righteous will come through trouble. See, we live in a fallen world, and there's going to be bad days in your life and my life. There's going to be bad seasons. Not just a day. You say, what is this season? when is this season going to end? You might be one of those seasons right now. You might be in a season right now saying, when will this season ever end? The righteous will come through trouble. There will be trouble. There will be times of difficulty. You know, Job wasn't knocked off his feet Knocked for a loop with disaster after disaster because of sin in his life. You know that, right? If you've read the story, Job was not living a life of sin, was he? And he was hit hard. Haymakers, body blows, shots to the head, kids dying, loss of everything, everything gone. Has anyone here experienced the life of Job, I mean, you could say, that's exactly my 100% testimony. Every single thing, I lost it all. Some of you might have come close, but I don't know that anyone here has had exactly that. But, but in the room this size, there's been a collection of Job's life, right? These things happen. And it wasn't because Job was running his mouth. In fact, Satan was running his mouth against Job, wasn't he? But Job wasn't out sinning with his mouth and his tongue. Now he was actually attacked by the enemy because he was standing for righteousness. Because he was standing for God in a fallen world that didn't like God. But he held, didn't he? Or God held him. <laughs> it was partially Job just holding on for dear life, but it was mainly God held Job. And by the way, if you've survived, it's, you're hanging on by a thread, but also really God's held you. I've hung by a thread many a times. And perhaps, Christian, you're in a storm right now, but God wants you to be a planted tree, doesn't he? He wants you to be nourished while you're weathering the storm, and the storms will be tough sometimes. They feel like you're about to collapse. Look at 1 Peter 1.6. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. I love these words that Peter writes to the church. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. See, trials have a season. God puts the markers on them. For a while, he said, you've been grieved by them. They're difficult. 
But you can rejoice because you know that God's in control. Do you believe that? That he's the one that keeps the tree from, from falling over? Have you ever seen a tree that's been there for, you know, you say, this, maybe down Williamsburg, and they say, this tree is over 100 years old. Now, even though the roots are deep, there are things God could send to knock that tree over. They're like, the park ranger will say, it's gone, it's gone through 18 hurricanes, it's been hit by lightning X amount of times, and it looks as healthy as can be, right? Because the roots God plants, but ultimately the life of the tree is in the creator. He's the one that sustains us through trials. That's what Peter's telling the church. You can rejoice because God has your back. Isaiah 40, 31, if I haven't quoted this to myself, I don't know how many times. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You ever felt like fainting? I've felt literally like fainting plenty of times. Where spiritual attacks or heaviness or whatever it is. And this passage has kept me standing at times. Literally. Not just spiritually speaking, but literally. Jeremiah 31.3, yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Isn't that great? God says, the reason you will be able to persevere and be strengthened and be re-strengthened is because of me. But you have to be rooted. You have to stay abiding in Jesus. Look at verse 14. A man will be satisfied with the good I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know why I've read this verse wrong like every time tonight, but uh, I'm going to focus on verse 14 for one second here. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. This continues the thought that not only the lips, but the actions of life are under the control of the Lord, and eventually, we don't always like that word, but eventually it will pay off. Eventually, trust that God's time will finally come to place and say, wow, I, I see now what God was doing. I see the reward of saying the right things. Didn't seem like it was ever working. Doing the right thing. Didn't seem like it was really working. People weren't responding to me doing the right things. Give it time. God's faithful. It may take some time, but you, know, you plant a little tree, it doesn't stay little forever, does it? It eventually grows up. We were down, when we were down in Florida, um, I, I love how, you know, I was talking to one of the relatives, and they were saying that in the, in the forest, this is um, up in northern Florida, they were walking in the forest, and deep in the forest, in the middle of it, there was an orange tree that was huge, full of oranges. It kind of defies it because it's like, how is it growing like this? It's surrounded by trees, and it's way bigger than the ones that are, that are manicured by orange growers. And it just, as soon as I hear it, it's a reminder to me that God is the one that takes a little sapling. You and I, we, we try and get things to grow, and they won't grow. We look across the street, and there's a whole forest going up. You're like, how is that happening? Because God is the one that causes things to grow if we simply are planted in him. It may take time, but the little tree grows and eventually it'll bear fruit. 
And likewise, especially at the end of the age, God will render to us the reward of what we did or didn't do, what we said or didn't say. Verse 14 there. Look at verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Now, we all know that many people who ignore God make their own decisions, right? They don't need to pray. They don't need anyone's help. They can make decisions based on feelings. They can make decisions based on fear. Fear is a lot of a driver for decisions. Not a good, not a good driver for decision, but it is one. Uh, people make decisions on what's in it for me, right? This decision is all about how is it going to help number one. Which, by the way, when you talk to God, a lot of times he'll say, but I'm not just looking at you in this decision. Hey, how is it going to impact other people? Who's it going to help? Who's it going to hinder? So we have a different decision-making process. Our decision-making process is not just about what will it do for me, but what will it do for those around us. Now, God cares about how it will impact us, too, because he's always working something in our own life, but it's not just about us. So there's other factors. Some people make decisions based on peer pressure or maybe cultural norms. This is what, this is what society says. You, you, you have to, I guess I have to buy a car every two years. That's, the, that's what Ford's model says. I, I, I saw it on the brochure, right? You know. But these are just to name a few, and some might say, no, I just make mine. I was a gut feel. You ever heard people say that? It's just a gut feel. What does that mean? There's no, there's no verse for this. I'll, thou shalt make gut feel decisions. The, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? So if you're trusting, well, I just have a great heart. No, none of us do. So that's, that can't be a great decision criteria. And then many people are just writing their own opinions. Say, well, I have my life experience. I have this. I've had that. I've been dealt a bad hand. I've been fooled a few times. I know how to make decisions based on life. I just know how this works. But I think there's a real caution here for all of us as Christians. He who heeds counsel is wise, the second half of this verse. We should absolutely pray over decisions in life. Would we all agree on that? We should be praying over our decisions. Some decisions are bigger than others. Some should be bathed in prayer. But is it possible that sometimes Christians avoid counsel because they're afraid counsel might not match their predetermined direction? I don't ever get any counsel. I just pray about it. Really. Proverbs says it's good to get counsel. Prayer's good. You should absolutely get prayer. But you should have mentors in your life that you bounce things off. You should have spiritual brothers and sisters say, hey, I'm thinking about this. I'm praying about this. What do you think? God speaks through other people. So we're, a, we're a family. We're not a, a Lone Ranger Island lives. A lot of people, I believe, in 20-some years of being saved now, they don't want any counsel 
Because they already, and by the way, if you look at a verse, you'll find a verse to match your decision. You, if you know your Bible, you can find a verse to match anything. Doesn't mean that it's been applied right, but you can find one. But that's just as foolish, isn't it? As, as the world's just kind of following their own dictate, it's just as foolish for us as Christians to avoid counsel. God's put spiritual, mature people in our life, hopefully, especially if you really invest in being discipled, that you can say, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I'm praying about it. And sometimes I've had conversations like that, and someone spoke a word right to me right then, and I'm like, I needed to hear that. Sometimes it's a good kind of like gentle slap in the face. Like snap out of it. What would make you even think that's a good idea? Sometimes you need a spiritual mentor to tell you that. Because if someone really loves you, they're protecting you from an unwise mistake. But the fool says, I don't need anyone's help. I just figured it out myself. Verse 16, we have uh, these last couple of verses here. Verse 16, a fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. You can push some people's buttons... And you can get a quick response of outrage, cursing, tweeting, even violence in no time at all. Because the Bible says a fool, just their feelings just rule their life. But a prudent person, even when they're insulted and pushed, is able to ignore it and rise above it. That's what, the, that's what this proverb actually means. That a prudent person is able to say, that was directed at me, but I live for Jesus, and I'm not taking the bait. Right? And go past it. Joseph and David both did this. You know, Joseph, he was, all he was doing was living for God. What did he get for it? His brother sold him into slavery. When he reached power, he had everything in his hand to have them hung up. Matter of fact, they were petrified when they found out who he was. You realize he had all the power to say, string them up. It's 13 years ago, they sold me into slavery. They said I was this and this and this and this. They lied about me, and then I had to spend time in a dungeon. I want them all hung by sundown. He could have done that, but he didn't do that, did he? Because he reflected what? The mercy of God. David Saul was constantly saying things about David. David was, was anointed by God, and David twice could have killed Saul easily. Matter of fact, his men were trying to say, God's delivered him into your hand. David said, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. David says, that's not my place. I'll let God do the, the bidding, the defending for me. They didn't exhibit wrath, but mercy and obedience to God. In Romans 12, 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. It goes on to say, for his written vengeance is mine, saith Lord, I will repay. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Paul's requoting it. So we can't be ruled by emotions. We have to be ruled by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of mercy, the Spirit of grace. Verse 17, he who speaks with truth, he who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. Last two verses here. Verse 17 here, it says, um, he who speaks the truth declares righteousness. Telling the truth really does declare righteousness, especially in the day and age we live in, but not just, of course, 
Lying's been around a long time, and Satan's the father of it. But telling the truth really does declare righteousness because shading the truth is so commonplace. When you're a truthful person, people may not say you're a really truthful person, but they know you're a truthful person. After a while, they know it. They know you'll actually say you're not perfect. Not like with the kind of, oh, nobody's perfect. But you'll actually say, I really blew it. That's being truthful. I really blew it. This was my fault. This was my fault. You'll take accountability for things. They're not used to that. They're used to casting the blame everywhere, shading the truth, lying about. And in many of us, that's the way we live too. And I'm not saying that we never do that after salvation. Of course we do. But the longer we walk with the Lord, the more truthful we become. And certainly we should be becoming. Being truthful reflects a God of truth, doesn't it? God's truth. He, he cannot lie. The more truthful we are, the more we reflect God. What did Jesus say about himself? He was the way, the truth. There it is again. The life. It's hard to understand what being truth and being life is. Now, we know that Jesus is the personification of truth, life, but he imparts that in us by his Holy Spirit. And truth followed brings life, doesn't it? Truth honored preserves our life by trusting in God. There's so many lies, they're just about deceiving for selfish gain, aren't they? So many people lie just to kind of to get an edge, to gain an edge. It's sad that we, if you watch things sometimes, you, if you kind of read between the lines, this is what people are literally saying. Sometimes, literally, sometimes they actually frame these words, but without framing the words, you'll see this often in our society today. People are basically saying this so often. I'll say anything for the right amount of money. You give me the right compensation, I'll say anything you want me to say. You want me to lie about this person? I'll lie about them if it's going to help me, if you'll pay me, if you'll make me a millionaire, if you'll give me a leg up in my job or my career. You tell me what to say for the right dollar amount, I'll say it. And that's become pervasive. Many of our young people are being taught this. You just say whatever you have to say. If you have to lie in the exam, if you have to lie in the job interview, whatever it takes, the only measure of success is did you did you, compl- did you win them over? Did you pull one on- over on someone? Did you get ahead? But we're, ca- we're called to speak truth and declare truth and declare the righteousness of God by being honest in a world that's very, very dishonest, and increasingly so as the return of Christ comes. And lastly, let's look at verse 18 as we close. There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. It's a good verse to finish on here. Let me read it again. There is one who speaks like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Christian, brothers and sisters, how do you use your words? How do you use your words? We all have a tongue. How are we using it? So many people use their tongues to tear down other people, right? Gossip, slander, cynicism, snarkiness. Oh, save us from snarkiness. Everyone is a snarky cynic now. You ever seen the comment fields on Twitter or Instagram or any of these things? It's unbelievable. But what about 
us. We're called to be what? Salt and light. Salt and light. The complete opposite of things that are decaying. Are you and I building and strengthening other people up with our mouths? Not just our prayers, but with our mouths. Encouraging. Are we encouraging and exhorting people to go forward in the faith? Are we telling young people, no, you can live for Christ today? Everyone's telling me you can't, it's impossible these days. No, that's not true. The same God that was with Joseph and David is the same God with our young people that are downstairs in the ATG room right now. Are we exhorting and building up people say, you can grow in Jesus. You can be you. You can be a witness. You say, well, my life, I've made too many mistakes. Doesn't matter. God, he'll take that past and actually use it for his glory. Perhaps you say, well, I'm an introvert. I don't have anything to say, good or bad. I'd say nothing. I don't encourage. I don't discourage. I just live my life, and because I'm an introvert, I have nothing to say. Well, that's better than tearing people down. I agree with that. But God's called us to more than just living our life quietly. We're to use the tongue. I saw this T-shirt recently for for you introverts. We're here, we're uncomfortable, and we just want to go home. (laughs) Now, we can all laugh at that, but part of that Part of that is a lie from Satan. The, the longer I'm pastoring church, the more I'm realizing that even Christians are wearing labels that God never gave them. I, I bet God would say to some people, who told you you're an introvert? I didn't tell you that. I think God would say to some people, who told you that you're this? I didn't tell you that. Who told you that you're incapable? I didn't tell you that. I told you I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But again, we're called to be salt and light. We're again, we're called to be fruitful And those are characteristics of what? Impact. Impact. We're not to be poison, which is tearing people down and actually slander and all the other stuff. We're not to be that. But we're also Christian, whether you're an introvert or you say, well, I'm not an introvert, but I haven't learned to exhort and encourage. We're not called to be non-factors either. That makes sense? We're not called to be poison, but we're not called to be non-factors. Say, well, I just kind of... I have my seat, I listen, I learn, I listen to the radio, I do that, but I don't use my mouth for God. No, it's, this is for everyone. This isn't just for pastors. It says the tongue of the wise. Look at, look at we're closing with this verse. Look at the tongue of the wise. Who is that? Well, that's all Christians. All Christians. It doesn't say the tongue of the preacher. It doesn't say the tongue of the evangelist. It doesn't say the tongue of the apostle. It says the tongue of the wise. If you're saved, you're called to be the wise. You're the followers of the Lord. The tongue of the wise, the wise use their tongues, but they use it wisely, and it promotes health. What kind of health? Every kind of health. Health promotes the health of a marriage. When you say a wise tongue promotes the health of a marriage, promotes the health of the family, promotes the health of a ministry. That's why I want our ministry leaders to exhort and encourage the people that that they have on their ministry teams. 
It promotes the health of the church family. When you fellowship and you encourage someone, say, hey, let me just stop and pray with you right here. Rather than say, that's really not my gift. I'll wait till someone else comes along and does it. Well, the other person might not come along and do it. The opportunity was missed, right? The tongue of the wise builds up. If you're part of a team environment, if you're part of a group of brothers and sisters, and it's not just the tongue. The tongue is just the outflow. You can text this to somebody. You can email someone. You can pick up the phone and say, hey, I just, Lord, put you on my mind. I just wanted to call you and encourage you. And I, I don't have but a couple of minutes. I just want to say, I love you. I'm praying for you. That's it. 20 seconds. Things like that. A voicemail. God wants to use the tongue of the wise promotes health. And do you realize that some people, your encouragement just might lift their spirits and all of a sudden the cloud of depression's gone? You'd be amazed at what God wants to do through us in the lives of other people. It promotes health. We need to stop there, but I hope we are reminded tonight by the Lord that as we're rooted in these things, God wants us to grow us in these things that we touch and impact others. Amen?